Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast in African Studies. I'm your host, Jim Lance. I'm assuming that if you are listening to this podcast, you know about the New Books Network. But if you don't know that the New Books Network covers a whole host of podcasts for other subjects and other authors, I really invite you to check it out. The URL is newbooksnetwork.com. And as Martha Stewart would say, it's a good thing. Today, I am very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Ernest Harsh. He's an adjunct associate professor at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, where he teaches courses on African development and political instability in the Sahel. And he's also a research scholar affiliated with the University's Institute of African Studies. Dr. Harsh got his doctorate in sociology from the New School for Social Research in New York, He also wears a number of hats. He's a journalist. His professional career has taken him throughout the world, Asia, the Caribbean, Eastern Europe, but most extensively, he's written on Africa. We're here today to talk about his most recent book, the biography entitled Thomas Sankara, an African Revolutionary. It's going to be published by Ohio University Press, and I'm really excited because this is really a sneak preview. It's not coming out until uh, November, so listeners are, get, are privy to, uh, I guess, what Hollywood call, would call a, uh, a test marketing for the book. Uh, Dr. Harsh has written other books. He's worked on African issues for more than 20 years. At the United Nations Secretariat in New York, for example, he was managing editor of the UN's quarterly journal, African Renewal, where he specialized in issues of African, of economic development, governance, and post-conflict recovery. He's also written hundreds of newspaper and magazines article, magazine articles. Uh, he's published topics on a wide range of African issues, democratization, social movements, and anti-corruption state reforms. Um, his current research of which this book, I think, is a part, uh, looks at uh, state and citizenship formation in Burkina Faso, African protest movements, and he's also branched out into studying uh, the politics of corruption in Ghana. Uh, Dr. Harsh, welcome to the program. I thank you for participating. Thank you for having me. Uh, That was a rather uh, formal uh, seminar-type introduction to you. I one of the things I really like about the, the New Book Network uh, podcast is it gives us a chance to know uh, the author a bit more in an, in an informal way. So uh, would you care to tell us a little bit more about yourself uh, that sort of goes beneath the lines of the academic bio? Uh, how did you get interested in Africa affairs? What led you to uh, writing about the subjects you do? And in particular, for our book, what led you to Burkina Faso and Thomas Sankara? Well, um How I originally got into Africa was as a journalist. Um, I realized the bio 
from the SEPA website said 20 years. That was just uh, at the United Nations. Uh, 20 years earlier than that, I started out as a journalist before I became an academic, uh, mainly internet, interested in international affairs. So I bounced around to different regions of the world. I thought it was important for readers in the U.S., and I also wrote for foreign publications to understand a bit more about how the rest of the world functions, how how the rest of the world sees the U.S. Uh, and through that whole process, I eventually sort of ended up focusing more or less in recent recent decades, more or less exclusively on Africa, because you can't cover everything, I learned. Um, throughout this period, I've been interested in social movements uh, in Africa, and particularly the liberation struggles against Portuguese colonialism, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, revolutions like those in Ethiopia and elsewhere. Uh, so my political antennas were somewhat already tingling in that direction when I uh, began noticing the developments in what was then called Upper Volta, uh, now Burkina Faso. I had actually heard about Sankara before he became president because uh, he was a briefly a prime minister. He was a radical junior officer who clearly wanted to shake things up. And in my mind, because I had already seen that in neighboring Ghana, with Jerry Rawlings, you know, the question arose, was this a pattern worth looking at? Uh, then I met Sankara when he came to New York, his only U.S. visit, in 1984 to address the U.N. General Assembly. Uh, there was a small gathering of journalists interested in Africa at the, uh, the, the mission, uh, the country's mission to the U.N., um, so, you know, I got to talk with him a bit. I was struck not only by the forcefulness of his ideas, but also his direct, unpretentious way of talking with you. Um, he was, you know, the least formal person you could imagine in one-on-one -on -one discussions. Uh, he also demonstrated later that night when he addressed a crowd of about 500 African Americans in Harlem, uh, that he had a great ability to connect with the crowd, and he was quite impressive in, you know, connecting with them, getting them to respond, and so on. The following year, 1985, I traveled to Burkina the first time, first of several visits, to report on what was happening there. Uh, I was able to interview Sankara extensively and in shorter periods, met with him on a number of other occasions for more informal discussions. And all those visits only reinforced my initial impression of him. Now, why Burkina versus other parts of Africa? Well, a little bit, it's because to me, Burkina Faso was a challenge. It's a little-known country, uh, whether under the previous old name of Upper Volta or the new one, Burkina Faso. Uh, one of the poorest countries in the world. At that time, in the 80s, it only had about 8 million people. wasn't in the news very much, so I felt I could break fresh ground in working on Burkina. I used to write a lot about South Africa, published a book, but, you know, there are many others in South Africa and abroad who are researching and reporting on that country. <laughs> Not too many are doing that on Burkina Faso. Um, so incidentally, because of my South Africa background, I'm also very gratified that Ohio University Press has an arrangement 
with Jatana Publishers in South Africa, which will also be releasing the book next month in that country. Oh, that's really good. That's really good to hear. It's really important that these books reach Africans themselves rather than just stay sequestered in the, the halls of northern institutions and readerships. And I might add, it's uh, the, the series of Ohio University Press, Short Histories of Africa, yes. are intentionally short, uh, and the, you know, the cover price will be reasonable compared to many academic books, which are quite expensive. So more people will be able to afford them, and especially in poor, poor regions like Africa. Now, another reason I thought, I mean, why Sankara? I mean, personally, I not, I haven't done any biographies before. It's not my particular form of writing, uh, especially events like those in Ghana, South Africa, Burkina Faso, elsewhere. These are collective historical developments. So focusing on an individual wasn't my initial inclination. Uh, Ohio University Press wanted to do a book, so they approached me, and I said, yeah, sure, why not? But it wasn't how I started out. Uh, I had done a lot of work on the country, and of course, Sankara as an individual is a notable figure, I think, in recent African history. Uh, looking back on it, traveling around the continent today, talking to people, you see that today many youths, African youths, intellectuals in particular, see him as a hero, partly because he stood up to the West and he had an image as being incorruptible. But in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, he's been underappreciated, I think. Again, it's a small country, poor, not well known. There's the language factor. It's a former French colony. Sankara and his colleagues expressed themselves mainly in French. So while Sankara and Burkina Faso might be known to some extent in France and French-speaking Africa, it's much, they're much less so in the English-speaking world, including the U.S. So I see this book as an attempt to address that gap in a modest way. Like I said, it's a short book, just 160 pages. There's a lot I couldn't get into in any depth. Uh, but it was fun as a journalist to be able to write in a popular way for a general readership. It's a nice relief from doing academic writing with bibliographies and footnotes. Um, so I enjoyed doing this. Great. Um You've touched upon it, but uh, and I don't mean this in the pejorative sense, but Burkina Faso, to me, is what I call a crossword puzzle country. Uh, I assume, as you, as you said, that uh, Africanists and people in Africa uh, know Sankara, know Burkina, but I'm not so sure Burkina Faso trips off the tongue of many people in the United States, for example. So could you amplify a bit upon the context in which Sankara emerged uh, specifically related to the history and economic economy and politics of Burkina at the time that Sankara became prominent? Well, I mean, you could look at it at two levels. Mm -hmm. There's the context he emerged in, in the country itself, with its history, its politics, how people reacted. There's also Sankara and the revolution he led on a sort of global, at least Africa-wide scale. Uh, within the context of what was happening in Africa at the time. Uh, that's another factor in how he continues to resonate. Um, 
But in just going back specifically to the country, which was then Upper Volta, um, again, I, it's kind of hard to overemphasize how poor the country was. Um, uh, I remember going to a small town in Po in southern Burkina Faso. This was during the revolution. And the, the main guy who was the head of a committee for the defense of the revolution, the, the government's main representative in Po, he showed me his telephone. It was a wooden box with a crank on the side left for, you know, by the French colonial administrators. And to get a number in Ouagadougou, he had to crank it. And then an operator <laughs> came on and then they connected him. This is in 1985. So, you know, even though, I mean, Ouagadougou itself was not like a big metropolis. It's more like a small town. The rest of the country was quite remote. So it's very underdeveloped, uh, very poor. Um, Sankara, that's the world that Sankara uh, was born into and grew up into. Um, when he was a young man, you know, after going through sort of primary education uh, and early secondary studies, the military, which was very new in the country at that time, very new, uh, at least in terms of local officers, uh, there were hardly any except some who had fought with the French in Algeria or Indochina. Uh, they had hardly any younger ones who had been trained within the country. So in the 60s, the first local military academy was formed, established. And for Sankara, you know, he, he was from a poor family, relatively. Not that poor, but, you know, he couldn't afford to pay for further education. So he was able to get a scholarship to the military academy. So that for him, that was a way to get education uh, and to improve himself. And in a certain sense, the military in Burkina at that time, like in much of Africa, had a kind of positive public image. Uh, not what happened later after all the corruption and repression. They were seen as, the military was seen as a new national institution that could help modernize the country, uh, deal with the archaic legacies of the past, maybe stand up to the former colonial rulers, although that usually didn't happen. Um, so he got his training in the military. Uh, he also, uh, very early on, became radicalized by talking with civilian friends and military colleagues. Uh, so they became aware of the world around them. Uh, he was sent abroad for military training to Madagascar, where there was a revolutionary experience uh, in the 70s. Um, so that forged him a bit. Um, he also had experience in his own country with elected civilian regimes, which are often posed as an alternative to military rule. But in Upper Volta, that, as it was called at that time, the civilian regimes were very corrupt. You know, the, they just did backroom deals. It wasn't terribly exp ex exciting. Um, so that wasn't a that version of democracy wasn't very attractive to him. Uh, I won't go into all the details about how his government came to power. I mean, there were a lot of struggles back and forth. Uh, he didn't just initiate this. He, he was part of a broader process. 
the French tried to block the radicalization within the military and in the country. They failed. And in 1983, he and his colleagues managed to take power. Uh, the form was a military takeover. Uh, some people called it a coup at the time. Uh, but it was in conjunction and alliance with committees of civilian supporters and with civilian uh, revolutionary organizations. Uh, so it wasn't a strictly military operation, and it didn't. The regime that came out of it wasn't. It was a hybrid. Um, so that was what the period that they called the revolution. Uh, the government or the leading body was the council. The National Council of the Revolution, or CNR, by its French initials. And it was in power for only a little bit over four years, not very long uh, in, a, in the historical scale, but uh, was able to achieve quite a lot in that small, short period of time. If I may, I'd like to backtrack a bit, a bit before we get talking more about... Um that brief period, four-year period, yeah. when some, when the CNR was in power. But I'm really interested. In what really intrigued me, in addition to the wealth, to the the information about Sankara that needs to be disseminated, was the, uh, the processes of radicalization. Um, could you go into a little more detail about his intellectual development? I know that you, you mentioned he was exposed to a number of thinkers and authors. What what kinds of what what was he reading and with whom was he talking about? What were the predominant theories that influenced him of social change and revolution? Well, I mean, this was the the sixties and seventies. Um, people traveled around, you know. Some of his friends had been in France. You know, there was the political ferment going on, especially among, in the student milieus, because most of his friends came out of the student struggles. Uh, and it was, you know, many, there were Marxists. A lot of Marxist theories were prevalent. Anti-colonial uh, thinkers like Franz Fanon, uh, mm -hmm. that was one he read actively. He used to like to tell this story that part of his Marxist education came in the military, in his military academies, because they would teach, uh, as part of their counterinsurgency training, uh, about Ho Chi Minh, about General Giap, you know, about the Algerian revolutionaries, uh, as something that the French authorities had fought, but for a young, energetic radical like Sankara, this sounded pretty attractive. <laughs> you know, people out there in the Third World, as it was then, widely called, you know, trying to improve their countries, uh, including by force, if necessary, against, you know, some of the most powerful armies uh, on the planet. Um, the French were a formidable force at that time. Uh, they fought many years in Vietnam. They fought very hard in Algeria. They also fought hard in Madagascar. So he picked up some of the anti-colonial thinking when he was in, in Madagascar as well. Um, it's hard, it's very, it was somewhat eclectic, you know, uh, I don't, he didn't get put into a particular ideological niche, uh, which I think was one of his, uh, strengths later on, because some of his colleagues were kind of narrow, uh, in their political outlooks, you know, they, some were Maoists, some were followers of Albania, some just, you know, <laughs> you can argue with this, you know, love Joseph Stalin. Um, but he was kind of, he stood apart from those sort of ideological divides. 
and and had a more broader outlook. Uh, you didn't have to be a Marxist to be a revolutionary in his view, uh, which I think is correct, especially in poor countries like Burkina Faso. Mm. He also, there was some religious uh, influence as well, because he had briefly toyed with the idea of going to seminary. But what he was attracted most to would have been what we later call liberation theology, mm. the revolutionary gospel of Jesus. <laughs> That's right. What and he was—he didn't see a contradiction in being a Catholic and being a Marxist. Well, you've—you've you've also um, touched upon thing, another thing that really intrigued me about Sankara as a person. Um, and I wonder if—if if this—I don't know if this is a question you can answer, but he had many choices. Why did you think he chose this particular path? Because he was in a position of power; he could have gone the way of the the groups that he came to oppose, and he could have really uh, enriched himself in ways that he certainly didn't when he became the revolutionary he was. Well, this is hard. I mean, you know, I never asked him that specifically, um, although you could glean it in many of his writings. I mean, he was, at base, a very moralistic person uh, in the sense, of, I guess, of the Puritans, or somebody like Julius Durera in Tanzania. The idea of enriching yourself by being in power, to him, was very abhorrent. And it really disgusted him and to see people, politicians, doing that. It upset him when some of his colleagues, you know, were tempted to go in that direction. Um, he felt that anybody in power should not live at a higher standard than at least the average of the people in the country. Uh, and they certainly shouldn't be seen to be doing that. Uh, that's one reason when shortly after coming to power, they sort of banned the use of luxury cars for government cabinet ministers. They had these small Renaults. And, you know, they, ministers would drive themselves to their offices and not have drivers and chauffeurs. Uh, they shouldn't have villas. They shouldn't have fancy housing. Um, they shouldn't go to the bars during working hours and just lounge around and drink and make deals. Uh, so he had a very austere outlook on life. Uh, not necessarily in a religious sense, but although I think some of his interest in liberation theology influenced that outlook as well. Um, so the idea of being corrupted was sort of the last thing on his mind. I mean, it was on his mind. He knew the dangers were there, but he was constantly trying to figure out ways to avoid uh, him and his colleagues getting sucked in that direction. Ultimately, some of his colleagues were, and that was part of his downfall. But he was sort of saw himself as swimming against the tide. Now, maybe just to jump ahead a little bit to his legacy, I think that's one of the key factors in why so many young Africans look to him today. You know, you had your Mandela's, Kwame Nkrumah, Patrice Lumumba, you know, were all genuine heroes, but most of them fought against colonialism or against apartheid, obvious clear enemies. What Sankara fought against was a bit more nebulous. It was the corruptions of power in the post-colonial era, which is, you know, all of Africa is post-colonial now, except perhaps Western Sahara. Um, so what he was against resonates very much 
with young people today, because what he was against in Burkina Faso, they're against in their own countries. Today, they see it. You know, the politics of money, of corruption, of doing deals, uh, you know, not even having any real ideas about how to govern. Uh, just how to stay in power if you get there, how to, how to get into power if you're not in. And which foreign backers to align with to get the resources in order to do that. Uh, so he sort of charted out and had a view of a different type of politics, if you will. One where politicians were supposed to be at the service of the people uh, and help the people mobilize themselves to achieve changes, not just promise things and do it for them. Uh, so that was just at the core of his outlook and personality. I think he made that choice before he came to power, and I think it was a factor in how he... Be- um, anyway... No, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the the moral component of his his career really struck me, and Nyerere and Mandela also came to mind. And uh, when we talk later more a bit more about his legacy uh, and what constitutes an African revolution, I think you've touched upon a really really important uh, point and why Sankara. Uh, is and continues to be, and it was and continues to be an important figure, not only in African politics, but um, in global politics. Um, why don't we move on and talk a bit about the specific events that led to the uh, coup, if you want to call it that, that brought Sankar into power, and then you can touch upon some of the things he did uh, during his time as leader of Burkina. Okay, uh, without, I don't want to complicate the history before the revolution, and, you know, it was a bit complicated. But he was, uh, he, he was making a name for himself within the military, uh, as a reformer. He was a reformer with, and here is not a revolutionary, but a reformer within the old army, uh, by seeing to the well-being of the soldiers, by getting ordinary soldiers to work with villagers and civilians in the bases where he was, uh, located, um, to break down this sort of a military-civilian divide. Um, and he also did a lot in terms of infrastructure development, something he learned in Madagascar about going out and building bridges and roads, things that are so obviously useful to a country that's trying to develop. Um, so he became known within the military for being particularly energetic and being able to get things done, being able to inspire his troops. Um, so in that context, you had a series of coups uh, every re- military regime had a different acronym. It gets kind of confusing. Uh, those who get the book could perhaps follow it. <laughs> um, but in the process, he, you know, he kept getting, the old thing was if you were in the military, the military took power, you took a cabinet position. Sankara initially resisted that because he thought, you know, that was just a way to, that the authorities corrupt people. Uh, eventually, he succumbed. Uh, he did this in discussion with his colleagues, because he was actually asked to take on a ministerial post in 19, I think it was 82. Um, and they said, well, look, if you continue to refuse, you know, somebody's going to probably arrest you. So he eventually agreed uh, to take on the post of Minister of, the in- of, the, of Information. Now, this was, you know, he would ride to 
his office on a bicycle. He was trying to send a message of the kind of government official he thought people should, you know, officials should be. Um, he actually took the shackles as off the press as much as he could. Uh, there was a state-owned media, which he had direct control over. There was also a private newspaper. And he encouraged them to expose instances of corruption. Now, of course, this wasn't uh, to the liking of the authorities, including the military rulers of the time. Uh, things got tense, and he just then suddenly resigned. He resigned his position. Now, I remember at the time in Africa, that was when I first heard about him. This was almost unknown. Nobody who had a ministerial post gave it up because <laughs> it was a way to make money. The idea of somebody resigning their position on a basis of a political principle was unheard of. Uh, so he did that. That was quite a shock. He was arrested. He was demoted. He was sent to some remote military base. Uh, but that whole incident made him even more popular. Uh, not just within the, among soldiers, ordinary soldiers, but among the civilian population as well. Another coup happened, same dynamic, uh, and they appealed to him to take on a leadership post. He, because his wing, his radical wing within the army and among the civilian politicians was stronger at that point, he agreed to become prime minister, which was the number two post. And he did the same thing with that position that he did with the Ministry of Information. He used it as a forum, as a pulpit, if you want to use religious terminology, to talk about the changes the country needed, about how to more energetically fight poverty, how to root out corruption, and also on the foreign policy level, how to stand up to the former colonial power France and the U.S. and other Western powers. And he reached out to revolutionaries across Africa and the world at that time. He went to a non-aligned summit meeting in New Delhi where he met Castro, uh, Samora Michel from Mozambique, Morris Bishop from Grenada. Uh, they all recognized a kindred spirit here. The French, of course, had difficulties with this. Uh, they basically gave a go-ahead for a coup for within that regime, and he was again, he was deposed and he was again arrested along with some of his colleagues. But there was a big reaction in the streets of Ouagadougou, uh, protests demanding his release, uh, leftist organizations mobilized in his support, including some of the trade unions, uh, and crucially, one sector of the military basically defied the, the, the coup, his ouster, and the establishment of a new regime. That was led by Blaise Compore, who had been... Uh, commander of the base in Po that Sankara had previously commanded. They refused to recognize the new authorities. You had kind of a back and forth for a couple months. Uh, finally, the revolutionaries, hearing that they might, some of them, Sankara and others, might be assassinated, basically marched on Ouagadougou and took power. And that was the beginning of the revolution and the establishment of the National Council of the Revolution. The CNR. Before I um, kind of talk about some of the specific programs that Sankara implemented, uh, another thing about your book that really struck me was how successful Sankara was in establishing a sense of national identity. Um, when I 
lived in Ghana during Sankara's period, I was asked by many Ghanaians, what does it mean to be a Ghanaian? And I think Sankara's uh, career sort of demonstrates the, that question, what does it mean to be a Burkinabe? So can you explain a little bit about the name change from Upper Volta to Burkina Faso and how Sankara was instrumental in getting people of this small, poor country to think of themselves as, as a unified group of people? Well, it was a process. Um, partly there was some dissatisfaction with the Upper Volta name, Volt in French, and you know, of course the name was in French. You know that was part of the problem. Right. Uh, referred to the Volta River, uh, the upper reaches of it, and as you know, the Volta goes down into well, goes down into Ghana as well. Um, so there's dissatisfaction with the the French designation, and also, you know, because the country was so poor and the state, we may come back to this. You know, the, the government apparatus, the administration, was so poorly represented throughout the country, most people didn't have any contact with any state representative throughout their lives, except maybe the tax collector. <laughs> that was about it. Or if things got rowdy, maybe some troops or police. Um, so how do you knit, how do you do anything? You sort of have to start knitting this uh, country together. Uh, and one of the ideas was to sort of rebrand it, if you will, in an African way, uh, to not have a European name, but also to have a pan-territorial African name that reflected the different ethnic groups. Because Burkina Faso has about seven, 60 different languages. Uh, some are quite small, with just a few thousand speakers, but some like the Mosi, who are you know, just under half of the whole population uh, and tend to be in the center dominant part of the country. So a year after they came into power, they renamed it from Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, uh, which is a composite name. Uh, Burkina is from one language, Faso, which means sort of house or republic from another. Uh, people of the, the citizens would be called current Burkina Be, and the Be suffix is yet from a third language. So there are three different ethnic groups reflected in the new name. At the same time, they began introducing through literacy programs on the national media, especially the radio, uh, news reports, announcements, and other things in other African languages. And before, it used to be almost entirely in French, uh, perhaps in More, the language of the Mosi, but not many of the others. So people became aware that whatever ethnic group they were from, they were citizens of their country who spoke a different language. Uh, cultural troops would perform at ceremonies from the different parts of the country. So people got a sense that this was a, a multilingual, very rich culture. And to me, the amazing thing is, you know, the, the revolution was controversial. Uh, the old elites didn't like it. Uh, some of their representatives are back in authority now. You know, they're very prominent. But whether they you were for the revolution or against, everybody seems to like this new name and this new identity. You know, whatever your position on the revolution was. So it's really sort of caught. It's caught hold. Uh, you know, in a sense of pride. 
you know, we're Burkina Bay. I remember people talking about they travel elsewhere in West Africa and you put out a Burkina Bay passport and, you know, customs and people in other countries go, whoa. You know, they get, they get kind of excited. Uh, so there's a sense of pride that came with it, and that's sort of taken root. Let's move on and talk a bit about some of the specific programs uh, that Sankara implemented as part of his view of development. Uh, another thing that struck me about your book was how Sankara, I think, has essentially uh, paved the way for a redefinition of what economic and political and social development is uh, his his was coming his views were coming uh, to me in, in distinction and in, and in contrast to sort of the grandiose huge projects that were um, espoused by global institutions such as the World Bank and even by his neighbor to the south in Ghana with uh, the Akasombo Dam project. So so can you touch upon uh, his views of development, the, the specific kind of projects he uh, encouraged and worked on, and and that kind of thing. Well, first of all, there's again we have to continuously remember the context of the country, one of the poorest in the world, overwhelmingly rural. Uh, at that time, very few people lived in the cities. Maybe 10% of the population. It's much higher today. And even the largest city, the capital Ouagadougou, was more had more of a feel of a town. There weren't a lot of tall buildings. There was very little industry. Uh, there were a handful that had more than a thousand employees, uh, like the sugar, sugar refining, that sort of thing. Farm production, most people were farmers. And most of them, all they had were hand tools. They didn't even have plows with oxen to pull them. So it was very hard to farm more than an acre or two. Um, Illiteracy was extremely high. Very few kids went to school, even into primary school. It was under 20% when he came to power. Uh, healthcare facilities were largely absent. You had, a, you know, a hospital in the capital for the, the wealthier people or the urban residents, uh, but not much out in the rural areas or smaller towns. Um, life expectancy was just astonishing. 44 years, the average. Uh, because of all the disease, the poor nutrition, uh, and so on. So, in his mind, in Sankara's mind, the most immediate aim was to improve people's living conditions as quickly as possible. Uh, and as you point out, it wasn't through these grandiose projects, which usually don't improve people's living conditions anyway. <laughs> They're sometimes just symbols uh, for the urban elites or those in the power, the Okasongo dams and whatnot. Uh, but to focus instead on ordinary people. For those who don't have enough to eat, who couldn't send their children to school, who died of easily preventable diseases, being able to do thing, those things was not only important, but in the context of the country, it was seen as a revolutionary step forward. Um, now, I have to say, Sankara was not an original thinker in this. Uh, similar ideas were put out by Julius Nerera in uh, Tanzania. Uh, this French development thinker, René Dumont, whom Sankara read during his, his schooling. Uh, but it wasn't the mainstream. Uh, and, of course, you know, you didn't have much of a state. 
so there wasn't much you could do with grand projects anyway. You didn't have any a strong state or the money to implement them. So focusing on the small things, uh, bring some tangible improvements to people's lives uh, was both a practical thing to do, but also made the most sense in the ideas of people. Uh, here was a government that was coming in, promising to make changes. The only changes you could really make were in the small things. So that's what they did. They actually demonstrated in practice that you could build schools, you could set up health clinics, and you could do a lot more of that than anybody thought was possible with very meager resources. Uh, the key difference there was, you know, the ingredient was mobilization. Uh, I think one of the chapters in my book is sort of focuses largely on that. Uh, as a reflection of Sankara's revolutionary approach, uh, the emphasis on popular mobilization, not just in a sense of people following a government they liked, but also taking initiatives and coming forward with ideas on their own. And the changes had to be visible. They had to be tangible. People had to see the new schools and health clinics, not just hear the promises of politicians or the plans that they were outlining. That was important for inspiring people to mobilize themselves. If you got a sense that, okay, here's the government's willing to do things, uh, but they want you to pitch in, okay, yeah, we'll jump in, we'll do it. Uh, that was, I think, a keystone of the government's approach to development. That it had to be self-sustaining. It had to come from people's own efforts and hard work. Uh, whatever foreign aid you can get from abroad, you know, that would be fine. That would be a help. But you decide what your priorities are. You put the work into it, and the, the foreign assistance, you know, is just sort of a supplement. I remember one of my trips traveling through the Dakar, running into a U.S. aid worker. I can't remember if he was Peace Corps or USAID. But he had traveled throughout West Africa. And he said that in other countries in the region, there was a tendency for people to just wait, to sit back, have the aid workers or government people do things for them. He said in Burkina, this was quite different. People were out there on their own doing things. You know, he was quite struck uh, by the level of enthusiasm and commitment of ordinary people. And he was no great fan of Sankara. It was just his observation comparing countries in the region. You know, this mobilization was real. Yeah, that's one thing that really struck me is uh, how he got, it's one of the few examples of political change in Africa where uh, people power is promised, and in many cases, uh, Sankara actually delivered upon that. And I think... Without that support, his revolution would have fizzled quite quickly, don't you think? Oh, yeah, probably. I'm, well, actually, they might have stayed in power longer. <laughs> Going by the record of other uh, pseudo-revolutions in the region in Africa, you know, if they got in power and trenched themselves, then they could have hung on to power longer, but without the people. Uh, Sankara had this one expression. Uh, I don't, I'm sorry, I can't paraphrase it properly but better to go one step forward with the people than 10 steps without them. You know, you're <laughs> on a good more sure footing. And you actually mm -hmm. then, then you're leaving something behind, something tangible. You're not running ahead and uh, just doing something for people. And then when you're gone, well, they'll forget about it. Um, this is not to say that 
as your book makes clear, it was a rosy primrose path uh, toward revolution uh, in spite of his successful um, mobilization of many people to support his programs. There was opposition. So what what elements within Burkina society uh, were not terribly sanguine about Sankara and why? And how did he deal with opposition? Well, there. I mean, you could you could sort of group them into a broad category: the old elites. Um, to be use a somewhat neutral term. Uh, of course, in the language of Sankara and his colleagues, they were the enemies of the revolution. Uh, but uh, basically, they were corrupt bureaucrats, corrupt officials of the civilian administration. They were military officers corrupt or, or repressive. Uh, they were land speculators. Um, they were merchants who would fix prices, engage in hoarding, that sort of thing. Uh, they would be in businessmen who were working with foreign companies uh, and do things in the interest of the foreign companies rather than the national economy. And in the rural areas, they would be the traditional chieftaincy, the traditional chiefs, who were strongest in the Mosi heartland of the country. Among most, they're very hierarchical. They even had a top chief who called himself an emperor. Uh, and many rural villagers throughout their lives have been subjected to these chiefs. Now, some of them were popular, they did what people wanted them to do, but others became corrupt and they would, you know, illegally sell land or force people to work on their own fields, uh, that sort of thing. So, all these categories weren't terribly happy with the revolution. Um, there were those who had been leaders of the old civilian political parties. Those old parties were banned. Uh, some of the former leaders were imprisoned or put under house arrest for a while, but then if they didn't engage in anything actively hostile, uh, they were eventually released. Uh, a couple of them, a couple of former presidents, in fact, were came to leadership of the National Elders Association. Um, General Lamizana and Maurice Yamayogo had been the country's first president. Uh, that was partly to reassure uh, older sectors of the population. Well, okay, these are brash young revolutionaries, but they're not losing sight of the fact that not everybody's under 30 years of age. Um, let me just mention, too, the, the youth were probably the most active in the mobilizations, uh, certainly in these groups called the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution. Uh, they brought a lot of energy into it, but they also brought some problems. You know, inexperience, perhaps impatience. So some of the youth sometimes did things in the name of the revolution that should not have been done. Uh, engaged in personal vendettas, engaged in extortion. The authorities would try to root them out, but it, you know, alarmed some segments of the population. Then there's also the traditional patriarchy. Um, not as a category, but you know, the society traditionally was very uh, gender-biased. Uh, decisions were all made by men. Women had almost a minor status, you know, not just when they were girls, but when they were adult women. Um, customs were quite contrary to women's the idea of women's equality. Uh, 
Sankara believed very strongly in the notion of women's equality. And as he was quite ahead of himself, I mean, ahead of his time in pushing that in the 1980s, appointed a number of women to cabinet positions. Uh, some, you know, went into the military, got military training in the lower level political positions and heading up some state enterprises. Now, there's not much, it was very hard to deal with the anti-women prejudices on the ground uh, and, and rooting out the customs uh, like female genital mutilation or child marriage, things like that. But they pushed and they tried to educate on that. So there were a lot of men who didn't quite, weren't quite comfortable with this, uh, including within Sankara's own camp. You know, they're a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, you can have a, a revolutionary male who then goes home and orders his wife around. <laughs> you know, yeah, this right. was not, you know, what Sankara wanted, but it showed some of the difficulties. So there are various sectors of the population who, that didn't quite understand, uh, what was going on. Um, Sankara's general approach was to try to convince people as much as possible. Um, when it came to overt opposition, you know, he was a military man. He came out of the military. I think it's important not to judge him by the uniform, but in many ways, you know, he did come out of that. Um, and you could see the imprint on some of his conduct. So some of the response to the old elites, you know, that was clearly quite repressive. Uh, and it sent signals to some of his supporters who, you know, perhaps went a bit further than they should. Uh, so there was a little bit of an undertone of repression, uh, especially at the level of the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution, where some of these young CDR activists just really got out of hand. And unfortunately, even though the CDR has accomplished a lot with the mobilizations, you talk to Burkina Bay today, and they tend to re- remember the, the, the dark side of the CDRs, if you will, you know, the repression. Uh, and I must say, though, that in the last couple of years, Sankara did a lot to try to rein in those impetuous youths uh, with some success. And there was a little bit of a, certainly a slackening of efforts at repression. You touched briefly upon his foreign policy and his um, ability to challenge and confront European powers, especially in relation to apartheid in South Africa. There was the memorable challenges he issued to Francois Mitterrand. Uh, and um, But how were other African countries, uh, how did they regard him? What was what were his relationships with neighboring countries uh, in Africa as a whole? And what particularly intrigues me as a person who's lived in Ghana was his relationship, which seemed to me to be quite symbiotic with Jerry Rawlings and what Rawlings was trying to do in Ghana at the very same time. Well, you sort of begin from the Africa level. I would put that in a global context because this was the era of the Cold War. A lot of African and other third world governments were very much aligned uh, for or against the U.S. and the West. Um, In his foreign policy, Sankara made it very clear where his government was aligned with the socialist countries, with the revolutionary Countries like, you know, Nicaragua, he was a big champion of that. He, he, he went there with Cuba, um, Vietnam, 
North Korea at the time, you know, Soviet Union, China, uh, but also the revolutionary or radical governments that came out of liberation struggles in Africa, like in Mozambique or Angola uh, or Uganda at the time. Now, in doing that, in taking such positions, uh, there's a boxing term, you know, punching above your class, above your weight class. Here's a poor country, a relatively small country without a, you know, big economy uh, that never had really an independent profile, foreign policy profile in the past, openly defying France, its former colonial ruler, and making very dramatic pronouncements and statements you know, about the U.S. while he was in the U.S., uh, and that sort of got a lot of attention. Uh, it won friends, it won enemies, uh, depending on what your broader alignment was. Within Africa, a lot of it depended on what, you know, alignment the particular governments had. Some of his neighbors were, were friendly. Uh, you mentioned Ghana, we'll get back to that. Uh, Benin, to some extent. Uh, but for the rest, it was a little bit more mixed. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire, which was very close to France, they were quite unnerved by what was happening in Burkina, especially since there were about between one and two million Burkina Bay who lived and worked in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, Mali, which had a, was under oppressive pro-French military dictatorship, uh, didn't like what was happening. They, in fact, initiated a border war. Uh, with Burkina Faso under Sankara. It's very brief, uh, not much damage as a result. Uh, Togo, they sponsored some Burkina Bay dissidents, uh, who were plotting coups. Uh, Ghana, uh, especially under Rawlings, uh, you know, they sort of, Sankara and Rawlings recognized themselves as kindred spirits. Uh, Rawlings came to power first. Uh, Sankara sort of liked the way Rawlings was trying to sh shake up the country. I think he probably borrowed some of the anti-corruption rhetoric from Rawlings, but it used it in a different way. Uh, the Committees for the Rent Defense of the Revolution, uh, Burkina, I think, got that name from Cuba, but then later got under Rawlings. They renamed their People's Defense Committees to Committees for the Defense of the Revolution. So there is kind of a mutual uh, resonance and impact. Um, in terms of the two figures, um, I haven't done a thorough assessment of Rawlings, but you get the sense that Sankara certainly viewed himself as a Marxist. Rawlings did not. Rawlings' ideas were a bit more eclectic and hard to define. Uh, he would sometimes jump around. They both had a little bit of that religious uh, moralistic tinge in their pronouncements. Um, and, of course, after Sankara was killed, Ghana, under Rawlings, they declared three days of national mourning. Uh, it was a big blow. Uh, and they provided some sanctuary to some of the refugees who fled Burkina Faso after the coup. People who had been close to Sankara. They found some support in Ghana or at least for refuge. Uh, you know, Ghana wouldn't like them to carry out actions against the the new regime in Burkina Faso, but, you know, they were at least given some refuge there. And I would say, in t well, okay, we could go more about Cote d'Ivoire later, because that was a key factor, I think, in the coup. 
Well, let's get to the coup. Uh, to me, uh, the events surrounding the coup are, are positively Shakespearean. The the drama, the characters involved, the tragedy. Uh, so let's let's move on to that unfortunate sequence of events, and uh, as you mentioned, the involvement of Cote d'Ivoire in these processes. Um, let me just say that in retrospect, I mean, looking at the way I presented the factors in the coup, um, the common analysis, and I mean, other than my writings about this and a few others, uh, was the sort of the standard, it was a foreign plot, behind the coup, whether it was the French or it was the Cote d'Ivoire regime or even the Libyans uh, were thrown into the mix or Liberian warlords. Uh, I think all that was true. There were the foreign spoilers who didn't like what was going on there and wanted to see it end. But I think that's an easy, too easy of a response to say it was a foreign plot. Um... It never could have gotten off the ground if it didn't have support within the country and including in this particular case within the, you know, the CNR, the National Council of the Revolution, the regime and in the military. Uh, among some of the disgruntled sectors within the country and this is crucial, I think, among some of Sankara's colleagues who maybe had the old notion of what it means to be in power, that you use it to enrich yourself. They were not at all happy with the anti-corruption measures and the scrutiny of their assets. Um, and I don't want to personalize things too much. You know, the revolution wasn't all Sankara. The coup wasn't all Blaise Campori. Uh, but Blaise Campori represented something a little bit broader. But he was at the center of it. And he in 19, I was it 85 or 86, I can't remember, uh, married an adopted daughter of President Houphouet Boigny of Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, so they're a direct family connection with the conservative pro-French regime next door to you was established early on. Uh, and she in particular was openly, explicitly wanted to have luxuries. Uh, and she may have had an influence on Campore. He may have been influenced himself. Uh, he was a quite ambitious character. Uh, so the diff, you know, there were differences within the regime. Differences, we talked about the, the notion of repression. Uh, those who were supported Campore tended to be harder line on that. Uh, they called for executions of trade union leaders who, you know, had criticized some aspects of the revolution. Sankara was against that, tried to block it. So some of the more repressive, maybe tempted by corruption elements within the, you know, the, the revolutionary leadership, then you throw into that the connection with Cote d'Ivoire and France, and you got all the ingredients you need for a coup. And unfortunately, you know, they did manage to carry it out. Uh, they operate in secret, so a lot of the details, you know, we could only conjecture about. Uh, but, you know, you can connect the dots and, uh, and at least have some circumstantial evidence of how this all came about. So the coup happened. I, I happened to be in Burkina at the time. I wasn't in the capital. I was in a uh, smaller, smaller town to the east, Kaya. Um, and... 
you know, they just basically ambushed Sankara and a dozen of his colleagues and mowed them down. Uh, and, you know, within a few hours, Kampori was the new president. The National Council of the Revolution was abolished. Uh, and a new so-called popular front regime was established. Uh, initially, they claimed that while they were doing this rectifying or correcting the revolution, uh, but within a couple of years, they dropped all the revolutionary rhetoric. And a lot of the old conservative politicians, business leaders, merchants, traditional chiefs, they all came gravitating around the, the Kampori regime. And, you know, without Sankara, without, or his supporters being able to mobilize resistance, a lot of the popular mobilizations for development, they basically collapsed. Uh, you know, you still had stuff that happened because people, you know, know how to work hard, but it moved more to the standard top-down development projects that you have in other countries. So, basically, post-Sankara, Burkina Faso has sort of become more uh, enmeshed in the Western fold and the Western concepts of development. And uh, Clearly, clearly. And, you yeah. know, I mean, Blaise Campoore, his top military commanders, you know, they travel to France, they get feted, they get awards. You know, he's, he's actually, in recent years, he's become... Kampor has become quite close to the U.S. Is he still in power, then? He's still in power. I mean, I have to give him this. You know, he knows how to stay in power. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and his family has become enormously wealthy. So, you know, it's the typical model of the African strongman. Um, and he's and become, like I said, become close to the U.S., um, partly around counterterrorism. Uh, initiatives. They play a major role in the Sahel region. And U.S. military forces use Burkina Faso for some of their surveillance and other activities there. So, and U.S. aid has stepped up considerably. Of course, the French, they provide considerable aid after the coup, too. So what's happened to the, the, the people who were mobilized behind Sakara since the, since the death of Sankara? They sort of just faded into the woodwork, or is there a groundswell of movement that might uh, return Sankara's ideas to the forefront of Burkina Faso's development? Well, the first years after the coup were very difficult. It was very hard for anybody in the country to openly say they were supporters of Sankara. Uh, some of them laid low they or, or took administrative positions in the new regime, saying, well, look, there's not much of a private sector, so where are you going to get a job? You have to work for the state administration some way. And some of them would fool themselves into thinking that, you know, if they stayed, they could preserve whatever it is they could preserve. Uh, but that was largely a justification. Um, the current prime minister, Luca Dolph Tiao, who I knew at that time, had been a Sankarist. You know, he wasn't Purged, he wasn't demoted. You know, he managed to find, carve himself some new positions. Um, others who were more, you know, closer to Sankara, some were killed. Of course, uh, there was an uprising in one of the military bases at Kadugu. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen a 
confirmed figure on how many were killed, but it could have been in the scores of soldiers. The commander, uh, Bukhari Kabare, had fled into exile in Ghana. Uh, he later went back. He's back in Burkina now, leading a small political party. But for the first few years, it was quite difficult. Uh, but then, you know, every year, people would track to his graveside at the cemetery. People knew where it was. Uh, so they became like little annual commemorations of his death. Um, by the early, by the 1990s, uh, the country, the regime sort of went the Western democratic route, partly because of domestic pressures, but partly because of pressures from France and the U.S. Uh, okay, you know, you're autocratic, but at least get yourself elected periodically. You know, they, they like that kind of model. Uh, Sonkampoe liberalized to, to, to a very controlled way, and that provided openings for people who were supporters, admirers of Sankara to form new political parties and organizations. Uh, unfortunately, they're all over the map. There are you know, many, many groups calling them Sankarist. Uh, and what they mean by that is very vague. It differs considerably. Uh, sometimes the groups are organized around particular personalities, people who had been worked with Sankara, uh, some who had been relatives, that sort of thing. Um, but in the elections, gradually, you know, I would say about not 10%, but under 10% of the electorate ended up voting for parties or political candidates who called themselves Sankarist. So they, you know, they have a small small number of deputies in the current parliament. Uh, wider than the parties, there are lots of, a lot of youth groups developed um, in recent years. Um, many of I mean, the majority of the population is so young they don't have any real living memory of Sankara. Um, his writings circulate, his speeches circulate, you know, on YouTube, on the web. They're not hard to find. So youth in Burkina who are dissatisfied with the way things are today, and that's a lot of them, you know, naturally would gravitate back to this historic, heroic figure that they heard about from their parents or that they read about or stumbled across on the Internet. So a lot of young people are sort of looking at Sankara's speeches, his ideas, what his proposals were, trying to make sense of them, how they might have some relevance to the way things are today. Uh, so you have a lot of interest in Sankara. Um, I, I, I should mention, I mean, we're re having this interview on October 8th. A week from today is the 27th anniversary of Sankara's death, and there will be more commemorations. I mean, people are organizing there in Burkina Faso to do that. Uh, and all this popular pressure has actually put pressure on the on the regime to, after the fact, acknowledge yes, Sankara was a national hero. And he was officially designated that. You know, they don't want to talk about the coup or how he died, <laughs> but okay, he was a hero. Well, that touches upon what I what will probably be our final point of discussion: Sankara's legacy. What do you see it as being? Well, I mean, I, we talked about within the country. Within the country, uh, Which yeah. will be different from it is what it is outside the country. Although, I mean, there's right. overlap, obviously. 
it wouldn't be, although some of them would be the you know the ideology who are attract those who are attracted to the Marxism. You know, he has some clear ideas on that. Uh, I think the sort of the moralistic anti-corruption stance probably resonates, especially uh, you know widely. Because a lot of people in Burkina Faso and Senegal and Benin and Cote d'Ivoire, they're very fed up with their own elites. You know, are quite different than those in Burkina Faso, but they, they have a lot of similar traits. You know, they even if they're elected politicians, civilian politicians, they make promises they don't deliver. They make themselves rich. And they almost all sort of kowtow to foreign corporations or foreign political figures or financial institutions. So anybody who's nationalist at all in Africa would have some resonance with Sankara. So, you know, it's the ideology, the revolutionary ideology, Marxism, what have what are anti-colonialism, uh, anti-imperialism, and especially I think the anti-corruption stance. Not just in rhetoric, because almost every political leader in Africa says they're against corruption, but very few of them act on it the way Sankara acted on it. And the concern with reaching ordinary people, giving them a voice, trying to figure out ways to get ordinary people to organize and have a voice in politics. Not an easy thing, of course, and that'll be different from one country to the next, but that general kind of impetus is what attracted a lot of people to Sankara. So the legacy in Burkina, you know, the sense of national identity, some of the social programs that were established and not totally dismantled, uh, a lot of the infrastructure, the, the state, which is much more formidable force than it was before his revolution. But above all, I think his ideas, you know, the lessons of what he was trying to do, the example of what he did try to do and, you know, partially accomplished. So I think the legacy is his ideas, which, of course, makes him a, a broader hero than just for Burkina Bay. Uh, you can be, you know, you could be in the U.S. and find some inspiration in that. Uh, in fact, there was some conference, somebody sent me a phone on there, you know, a little text message with a photo. Uh, there was, after the climate march in New York City, a couple weeks ago, there was a, a smaller conference uh, that was planning the flood Wall Street demonstration. And there was some guy, you know, a white American with a Sankara T-shirt on. <laughs> you don't see that much in New York, but, you know, it's not totally unheard of. And, you know, I'm sure there was some thought behind putting it on. The white hmm. bought it in particular. I'm sure there was. That 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 is, that is a really... Um Nice way to show how his legacy and his ideas have spread globally. Uh, I've been speaking and I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Ernest Harsh, who's author of a forthcoming book published by Ohio University Press called Thomas Sankara, an African Revolutionary. Uh, this is part of a podcast. We've been talking as part of a podcast on the New Books Network. And this podcast will appear under the category African Studies, New Books in African Studies, within a day or two. Uh, Dr. Harsh, I really thank you for your time and your uh, discussion from your book, and I wish you well. Thanks again. Well, thank you so much for having me.